And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West. Most haunted city in the country. Well, today is July 27th, 208th day of the year. 157 days remain till the end of the year. Holidays and National Days. International Digital Adoption Professionals Day. National Chili Dog Day. National Scotch Day. Ashura, that's the holy day for Muslims. Celebrated in the Islamic month of Muharram. Uh, Bagpipe Appreciation Day. There is no such day, in my humble opinion. Barbie on a Blender Day. Birthday of Dr. Jose Celso Barbosa. Um, made numerous contributions to Puerto Rican statehood. Chicken Finger Day. Now, I didn't know chickens had fingers, but go figure. Cross Atlantic Communication Day. Fast of 9th of Av. It's a national day to mourn in uh, Israel. Year Gygax Day. Uh, Iglesia de Cristo Day. National Carson Day. National Cream Boulet Day. National Intern Day. National Korean War Veterans Armistice Day. National Love is Kind Day. National Nancy Day. National New Jersey Day, National Refreshment Day, National Roanoke Community Beautification Day, National Sheila Day, National Sleepyhead Day, Norfolk Day, Take Your Houseplant for a Walk Day, Take Your Pants for a Walk Day. It's, uh, if you don't take your pants for a walk, we have issues with that. Tessua and Walk on Stilts Day. All right. You know, yesterday I went to Albertsons and I was going to get some auto tickets and I had uh, a check that I wanted to. I had won something, and I wanted to get the check cashed. There were 40 based on the conversation, undocumented immigrants in line, buying money orders to send money home to Mexico. Now, I have no problem with people trying to better themselves. In fact, it cost me a career for standing up for people's rights. I was informed I was a traitor to my race for wanting to give them an even break. But this is just one of many places where they go to get their money orders. There's probably, from what I was told, tens of millions of dollars every year that goes out of that one store uh, back to Mexico 
And we got people here struggling for jobs. Can't get them, even though there's vacancies every place you look. And to give you an idea of how our government is, uh, I went to my congresswoman who I helped get elected with an issue. And uh, she said, I don't have time for disabled veterans. My priority is the undocumented immigrants. Now, this is our elected official who doesn't give a crap about disabled veterans and would lay down and be a rug for undocumented immigrants. Go figure. In 1054, Seawad, Earl of Northumbria, invades Scotland and defeats Macbeth, King of Scotland, somewhere north of the Firth of Forth. 1189, Frederick Barbarossa arrives at Nice, capital of Serbian King Stefan Nemanja during the Third Crusade. 1202, Georgian Seljuk Wars. The Battle of Pasean, the Kingdom of Georgia, defeats the Sultanate of Rum. And if they'd gotten some coke involved, we could all have had rum and coke. 1214, Battle of Bovines. Philip II of France decisively defeats Imperial English and Flemish armies, effectively ending John of England's Angevin Empire. 1299, according to Edward Gibbon, husband the first invades the territory of Nicomedia for the first time, used to consider to be the founding day of the Ottoman state. 1302, Battle of Bafus. Decisive Ottoman victory over the Byzantines, opening up uh, Bithynia for Turkish conquest. 1549, the Jesuit priest Francis Xavier's ship reaches Japan. It's not bad enough. The, uh, the, the priest lorded over all the peasants. They have to export it. And I'm very pro-religion, but growing up, I had the misfortune to live near a uh, group of Jesuits and talk about religious fanatics. 1663, English Parliament passes the Second Navigation Act requiring all goods bound for the American colonies to have been sent in English ships from English ports. After the Acts of Union of 1707, Scotland will be included in the Act. 1689, Glorious Revolution. Battle of Killacranky is a victory for Jacobites. 1694, Royal Charters granted to the Bank of England. 1714, the Great Northern War. First significant victory of the Russian Navy in the naval battle of Gangut against the Swedish Navy near the Hanko Peninsula. 1775, founding of the U.S. Army Medical Department. Second Continental Congress passes legislation establishing a hospital for an army consisting of 20,000 men. And as I discovered 40 years ago, currently the director of medicine, if he approves you to be a doctor in the military, he could approve a janitor and you authorized to practice medicine in the military. The doctor I wound up having issues with was a medic in the German army 
He was actually Romanian, a member of the Iron Guard, came over here under Operation Paperclip. And um, they said, what do you want to do? And he said this himself, because he used to speak at the infantry school about um, Operation Paperclip. He said, I told them I wanted to be a doctor. And they waved their hand and said, you're a doctor. Major mistake. 1778, American Revolution, First Battle of Ushant. British and French fleets fight to a standoff. 1789, the first U.S. federal government agency, the Department of Foreign Affairs, is established, later be renamed Department of State. 1794, French Revolution, Maximilian Robespierre is arrested after encouraging the execution of more than 17,000 what he called enemies of the revolution. Believe the way I want you to believe, or we shall kill you. 1816, Seminole Wars. The Battle of Negro Fort ends with a hotshot cannonball fired by U.S. Navy gunboat number 154. Explodes the fort's powder magazine. Killed about 275 people. It's considered the deadliest single cannon shot in U.S. history. 1857, Indian Revolution. 68 men hold out for eight days against a force of 2,500 to 3,000 mutinying sepoys and 8,000 irregulars. <coughs> 1865, Welsh settlers arrived in Chubut in Argentina. 1866, the first permanent transatlantic telegraph cable is successfully completed, stretching from Valentia Island, Ireland, to uh, Hearts con uh, Content, uh, Newfoundland. 1880, Second Anglo-Afghan War, Battle of Maiwand, Afghan forces led by Mohammed Ayub Khan defeat the British Army in the battle near Maiwand in Afghanistan. 1890, Vincent van Gogh, according to legend, shoots himself and dies two days later. There is another story. He was actually shot by two young boys that he caught stealing some of his uh, possessions. 1900, Kaiser Wilhelm II makes a speech comparing Germans to Huns. For years afterward, Hun would be a disparaging name for Germans. 1917, World War I. The Allies reach Usur Canal in the Battle of Pashandale. 1919, a Chicago race riot erupts after a racial incident occurred on a Southside Beach, leading to 38 fatalities and 537 injuries over a five-day period. I have to say, I consider race riots the height of stupidity. 1921, researchers at the University of Toronto, led by biochemist Frederick Banting, proved that the hormone insulin regulates blood sugar. 1929, the Geneva Convention of 1929, dealing with treatment of prisoners of war, signed by 53 nations. 1940, an animated short, A Wild Hare is released, introducing the one, the only, Bugs Bunny. 1942, World War II, Allied forces successfully halt the final axis advance into Egypt. 1947, in Vatican City, Rome, canonization of Catherine Lebrewer, the saint whose apparitions of the Virgin Mary originated the worldwide diffusion of the miraculous metal. 1949, initial flight of the de Havilland Comet, first jet-powered airliner. 
1953, cessation of hostilities is achieved in the Korean War when the U.S., China, and North Korea sign an armistice agreement. Syngman Rhee, president of South Korea, refuses to sign but pledges to observe the armistice. 1955, the Austrian state treaty restores Austrian sovereignty. Also in 55, LL Flight 402 is shot down by two jet fighters after straying into Bulgarian airspace. All 58 people on board are killed. 1959, the Continental League is announced as baseball's third major league in the U.S. 1963, the Pojo Observation Towers opened to the general public in Pojo Hill and Kalpil, uh, Finland. 1969, uh, four, Vietnam War. 5,000 more American military advisors are sent to South Vietnam, bringing the total number of U.S. forces in Vietnam to 21,000. 1974, Watergate. House of Representatives Judiciary Committee votes 27 to 11 to recommend the first article of impeachment for obstruction of justice against President Richard Nixon. Of course, today, our president could uh, shoot somebody and not get impeached because he's wonderful. 1975, Mayor Jaffna and former MP Alfred Duripa is shot dead. 1981, while landing at Chihuahua International Airport, Aero Mexico Flight 230 overshoots the runway. 32 of the 66 passengers and crew on board the DC-9 are killed. 1983, Black July, 18 Tamil political prisoners at the Olakata High Security Prison in Colombo are massacred by uh, Sinhalese prisoners. That's the second such massacre in two days. 1989, while attempting to land at Tripoli International Airport in Libya, Korean Air Flight 803 crashes just short of the runway. 75 of the 199 passengers and crew and four people on the ground are killed in a second accident involving a DC-10 in less than two weeks, first being United Airlines Flight 232. And as I've always said, if you are killed on the ground by a falling airplane, you're having a really bad day. 1980, Supreme Soviet of the Belarusian Soviet Republic declares independence of Belarus from the Soviet Union. To 1996, the day celebrated is Independence Day of Belarus. After a referendum held that year, the celebration of independence is moved to June 3rd. 1990, also saw the Jamaat at Muslimin attempt a coup d'etat in Trinidad and Tobago. 1995, Korean War Veterans Memorial is dedicated in Washington, D.C. 1996, in Atlanta, a pipe bomb explodes at Centennial Olympic Park during the 1996 Summer Olympics. 1997, about 50 people are killed at the Zeruk Massacre in Algeria. 2002, Ukraine air show disaster. The Sukhoi Su-27 fighter crashes during an air show at the Viv, Ukraine, killing 77, injuring more than 500 others, making it the deadliest air show disaster in history. 2005, after the incident during STS-114, NASA grounds the space shuttle, pending an investigation of the continuing problem with the shedding of foam insulation from the external fuel tank. 
And in 2015, at least seven people were killed and a lot of others injured after gunmen attacked an Indian police station in Punjab. Well, there have been a lot of stories coming out of Las Vegas. And we spent a good bit of time there. One interesting story involving a, uh, a saxophone player. And according to the story, he was on the verge of making it big in Las Vegas. That was a, at that point in time, this was uh, 1955. The world was just starting to discover Vegas. And his big night was going to be the opening night of the Moulin Rouge, Vegas' first black casino. And if he could make it in Vegas, he could make it anywhere. And he'd been playing a saxophone almost since he was able to move his fingers and blow into the mouthpiece. And everybody encouraged him, said he had a gift and he was going to make it. And he'd been playing in nightclubs all across the country. Some of them nice and some of them real dives, but none watched him the way he wanted to go. And while the Civil Rights Movement was starting to gain momentum in 55, in most cases, he was only allowed to play to black audiences. And while some whites might sneak in to see the performance, they weren't in any way representing the norm. Just another month, the photo of two black showgirls from that same casino would be on the cover of Life magazine. And jazz was really getting started. He was making his presence known. And the young musician dreamed of following in the footsteps of Louis Armstrong and Henry Allen and Clarence Frog Band Henry, who was entertaining audiences nightly in New Orleans. You know... On this particular night, he straightened his shiny black tie around his neck, put on his black suit jacket over his gleaming white shirt, brushed his hair, made sure everything was just right when there was a knock on the door. And the young man there, another band member, said, uh, It's opening night, you ready? Well, He came to invite him to a party. And he brought, um, he brought in some green leafy plant to enjoy. We know about the green leafy plant. Well, they went to a party. And they were going to do a little pre-show relaxing. Well, they walked over to the back side of the hotel and up to the top floor. And even before they got to the room where the party's being held, they could hear the music. Stepped inside and found a room full of musicians and singers and hangers on. A lot of folks were there just for the marijuana. There was a smoke-filled haze, a mixture of pot and cigarettes filling the room. Made it hard to recognize faces unless she got real close to them. The woman walked up to the two musicians, smiled, handed uh, 
saxophone player a joint, put it to his lips and took a long drag and handed the joint to his fellow musician and headed over to the table where all types of liquor were displayed. Picked up a glass, twisted the cap off a bottle of rye and poured himself a glass full. His friend came back and got a drink and they went out to the balcony to enjoy the Las Vegas night air. While they were smoking and drinking on the balcony and dealing with opening night jitters when an altercation erupted in the room and the crowd backed away from the commotion, pushed right up against the two men standing on the balcony. Saxophonist tried to get out of the way and wasn't successful. Instead, the movement of the crowd forced him over the edge of the balcony. Well, the Moulin Rouge opened May 24th, 1955. This luxury casino was built as a truly cosmopolitan hotel with mahogany-lined walls and crystal chandeliers. Strip casinos placed uh, Welcome to Town ads in the local newspaper. Entertainers, entertainers like Sammy Davis Jr. and Pearl Bailey and Nat King Cole and Hella Belafonte were headliners. seemed the Moulin Rouge was destined for an almost immediate success. But as often happens in Vegas, it didn't quite work out the way they intended. Now from the moment it opened, the Moulin Rouge, or translated as Red Mill, attracted both an African-American and a white clientele many of whom were entertainers performing in the Las Vegas Strip. Heavyweights in the entertainment industry, such as uh, Cary Grant and George Burns and Frank Sinatra, were frequent patrons. According to Bob Bailey, a Lynn Rouge entertainer, it was a place to meet. Exciting and different, a breakthrough in the social mores of the town. It had an atmosphere you could only get at that particular casino. Heavyweight boxing champion Joe Lewis was brought in to, as a host and given a percentage of the club. In the late night review, the Tropican Can and Club Rouge was a resounding success. Even made the cover of Life magazine June 20th, 1955. According to Anna Bailey, one of the showgirls who was on the cover of Life, the whole strip emptied out. The show was so popular, management added a third show at 2.30 in the morning. Well, while the Las Vegas casino industry supported the new casino, that support was based on hopes that the Moulin Rouge would prove to be a home for African-American patrons, eliminating their desire to be in the white casinos. Now, personally, I don't know what the big issue is with race. That... Lack of understanding on my part cost me a career. When a crooked judge told me that uh, certain people didn't deserve to own property, it was for the important elite to own property. And if I didn't agree with that, I was a traitor to my race. Well, in 1950 in Las Vegas, it was a modern town with a very strong southern presence. It gained a reputation as an all-American vacation town and 
America at that town wasn't looking to see African-American dealers or Latino bellmen or Asian hosts. At the same time, West Las Vegas in the 50s had a strong, growing African-American presence. World War II had just come to an end, and the country was looking for a place to forget about death and destruction, a place to have some good old-fashioned fun. And Vegas was that place. Vegas gained its reputation as Hollywood's playground. Every major entertainer performed in Vegas, and it was the only place outside of Hollywood you could find Jack Benny, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Bob Hope, and Mae West all in one spot. Well, now while such landmark legal cases as Brown versus Board of Education and incidents such as Rosa Parks' refusal to give up her seat on a bus changed how the rest of America viewed their African-American neighbors, Vegas remained a stalwart pillar of segregation. And even though they represented more than 10% of the town's population, African-Americans were banned from many downtown casinos and clubs. And this ban included the very entertainers whose establishments, these same establishments sought to perform at their venues. Sammy Davis Jr., Nat King Cole, and Lena Horne, although welcomed as entertainers, were they couldn't enjoy the same benefits as their white counterparts. In fact, not only were they not allowed him book, to book rooms at the hotels where they performed, they weren't even allowed to walk around the place and have a look. They were forced to seek lodging in West Las Vegas and houses run by people of their own kind. Sammy Davis Jr. called that area similar to, to Tobacco Road. African-American business owners knew that black entertainers were forced to seek lodging with them and Proving that greed knows no color, those business owners felt no remorse in taking advantage of their customers. Many were charging higher rates than other African Americans renting the same rooms. And when did those business owners charge more for the same room, they even charged more than the resorts. While the old rancho was charging 14 a night for what's considered a first-class hotel room, one business owner was charging the African American entertainers who stayed at her place $15 a night. Of course, entertainers are outraged, and while a dollar doesn't sound like much today, it was a considerable amount then. Not only did they think being taken advantage of, but they were also unhappy being unable to stay in the hotels or the casinos where they performed. Yeah, King Cole was disgusted and dismayed that he couldn't even look around the casino that bore his name on the marquee. More upsetting to those Entertainers was that before 1947, they'd been allowed to stay in the very casinos that would now ban them. Other African-American leaders agreed, and in January of 54, a lawyer in the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, representative by the name of Franklin Williams, was hired to force the city to pass the Civil Rights Ordinance. Well, Las Vegas residents and city commissioners packed a small room on the west side of town. Tensions increased, as Williams argued for the Right to have a cup of coffee or throw a few nickels in the slot machine, adding, uh, you don't have to sleep with me or let me into your home. Many cries filled the room in protest and to William's speech, and others yelled out their support. Well, unfortunately, everybody concerned his attempts were unsuccessful, but the city was forced to realize that something had to be done to curb the rising tide of uneasiness in the African-American community. So in 1954, the city officials approved the construction of a large new gaming property in West Las Vegas. Before Casino Wheel had a name, it sparked controversial. Neighborhood casinos, although a 
mainstay of modern Vegas were almost unheard of in the Las Vegas of the 50s. White residents and nearby communities banded together to protest the construction, but their protests were in vain, and the Moulin Rouge was given the green light. Well, despite racial differences, the Moulin Rouge was actually intended as an interracial resort built on property owned by Will Max Swartz, located on a perfect spot between the African-American populated west side and the predominantly white areas of downtown. The three and a half million it took to build that hotel casino would come from New York restaurateur Louis Rubin and Los Angeles banker Alexander Bisno. The casino consisted of two stucco buildings that housed a hotel, a casino, and a theater. The hotel's name was written in stylized script above the entrance to the casino. That sign was designed by Betty Willis, the creator of the famous Welcome to Las Vegas sign at the south end of the Strip. Well, while the, the Moulin Rouge opened a fanfare, the success didn't last. Within six months of opening, the hotel was out of business. In December 1955, it declared bankruptcy. A lot of theories regarding why the hotel closed ranging from oversaturation of casinos. There were four that closed that year. The jealousy on the part of the established strip casinos whose mob presence pressured them to run those businesses out of town. More than likely, though, it was poor management and lack of understanding by its owners regarding what it took to keep a gaming establishment afloat. James McMillan, a civil rights activist who was married in a hotel, said when the hotel closed, it wasn't because of not having business. It closed because the partners couldn't get along and they decided not to pay any more bills. Well, while the flame of the Moulin Rouge burned brightly, it was extinguished quickly. It was never able to regain its light. Through the years, it passed between a series of hands that one time was briefly owned by Sarah Knight Preddy, the first African-American woman to hold a gaming license. 1956, a tower was built on the property, and for many years, the resort just sat vacant. Well, stories about hauntings of the Moulin Rouge began to be reported in the mid-70s when guests reported seeing uh, apparitions in their rooms. The area where the Moulin Rouge was located had become one of the bad parts of town. Killings and overdoses were somewhat common. One couple who came to Vegas on a budget reported seeing a ghost in their room late one evening. It came back later than expected from a show at the Tropicana and collapsed almost as soon as they hit one of the two beds in their room. Well, wife was awakened by somebody saying, please no, please don't. The voice made her sit up straight in the bed, and when she did, she saw a young woman in the bed next to her and her husband. She said, I could see right through her, so I had a pretty good idea. I was either dreaming or she was some kind of ghost or something. She was crying and saying over and over, please no, please don't. The woman told the ghost to just go away and laid back down and went back to sleep. Next morning, she called her mother, who was horrified that the couple had chosen to stay at the Moulin Rouge. She told her daughter, that that's a rough place, a lot of dope and killings. Well, just last week, a girl was murdered there in one of the rooms. The woman asked her mother if there was a picture of the woman who was killed. She said, I don't think so. Why? Well, in 1992, it was placed on the National Register of Historic Places, a move, oddly enough, made it even more difficult to make a successful go of it because the registrations were... Uh, Restrictions on renovations. May 29, 2003, the Moulin Rouge, an unceremonious end when a fire burned the property to the ground. June 4th of that year, the Las Vegas fire investigators ruled the cause of the fire was intentional. It was arson.
course, no one was ever arrested. Well, like many Las Vegas landmarks, the Moulin Rouge no longer stands, but it hasn't stopped the wild parties that went on every weekend from continuing. And while the building may be gone, people walk around the property at night, report hearing laughter and music coming from the spot where that once piped the casino stood. Guests and musicians who found a home at the Moulin Rouge seem to have chose to remain there, and one in particular, that brilliant saxophonist who fell from a balcony so many years ago, plays his solos nightly. Solos that would bring the residents of New Orleans to their knees. So if you want to hear something interesting, one evening go to the where the Moulin Rouge once stood and listen. Who knows what you'll hear. Well, you know, one of the big stories about Vegas had to do with the fire that swept through the MGM Grand Casino. Eighty-five people died. An outdated fire code combined with an air conditioning uh, issue destroyed a large part of the building in true Las Vegas style. Its residents picked in, um, pitched in wherever they could, coming to the aid of complete strangers. But while the fire itself may be gone, there are those who can't let go. You know, this fire took place on a busy Friday night. The um, One of the dealers said his table was full of players eager to lay down wagers in the hope of a big payback. And he said he was amazed at how much money people were willing to part with while chasing that big payday. Of course, there was always a chance that somebody would make it big, but even better chance they'd lose everything. I mean, let's face it, casinos are not built on the guest winning. Well, they dealt the cards, an ace to spot one, a five to spot two, a ten to spot three, and a three to spot four. He knew what each person would do before they even told him. The man at spot one would take another card. He played that ace like it was gold, making... Hits until they went over, messing up the rest of the table. That second spot would take another card as well. Third spot added a 10 to his queen, would double, but wouldn't do him any good because the first player had already messed up the hand. Fourth player stayed on his 13, hoping the dealer would go over and he'd win that way. Well... Dealer said he looked at the man at spot one, and the guy said, hit me, and he said that was a new player, and the new players almost always said, hit me, and he dealt a six. Now the man had a four, a six, and an ace, Confused, and he watched the man struggle to count the cards, confused on whether the ace was a one or an eleven. He's about to ask for another card when the lady next to him leaned over and said, you have 21. He said, are you sure? I always get confused with the aces. And uh, he responded, I can never remember if aces are ones or elevens. And she said, they're always elevens till you go over 21. And then the woman in spot three said, what's that? Players at the table turned to look at what she was pointing to, and the dealer didn't. 
Thieves often try to distract dealers, hoping to palm chips while the dealers ripped away. And if your chips got taken, you'd get lose your job. So he kept his gaze on the chips, and then he noticed everyone of the players was staring at something. Well, despite himself, he looked up, and that was when he saw what everybody else was looking at. A group of people were moving past the tables, floating in midair. I don't know if they're floating, but he said he could see right through them. Well, it's interesting. Another individual that was talked to was a waitress. She said it was a busy morning, 6.45 a.m. Her station was already full, plus there were 20 more people waiting in line, and she knew it would only get heavier, the crowds. And... Uh, she said a man was waving to get her attention, and he, she said, be right there. She sat the drinks down on the table, one in front of each guest. Uh, she asked him what she could get him. Uh, each gave their orders, and she wrote them down. He walked over to the man who'd gotten her attention and said, what can I get you? And he said, how about a cup of coffee and two eggs over easy? She said, you want bacon or sausage? And... He said, what do you recommend? And how come you're a waitress and not one of the showgirls? She said, I recommend the bacon, and I don't have the legs to be a showgirl. He said, I'll take the bacon, but I don't think you're right about the legs. And she said, you're sweet. You want toast? He said, uh, wheat toast. She said she'd be with him in a minute and turned toward the kitchen, made it about halfway across the restaurant when she saw the flames. And then she heard somebody yell, fire. Well, the restaurant erupted in panic, and she couldn't tell where the fire was coming from. All she could see was thick black smoke starting to pour into the restaurant. People were running all around, many of them screaming, and most of them coughing. She tried to help them get out, but the cloud of smoke was growing and already filled the entire restaurant. In fact, she was finding it hard and harder to breathe herself. The breath she took was labored, and when she did get air, it burned inside her. As the black cloud filled the restaurant, she became disoriented and stumbled. Put out her hand to catch herself, but there was nothing there, and she fell. She crawled toward what she, who she came to, something she could recognize. And if she couldn't figure out where she was, well, she really didn't want to think about the alternative. So she patted the floor, feeling for anything familiar, and put her hand on something soft softer than uh, the metal chairs and table support she had been bumping into and as uh, she crawled closer she saw a face it was a man tried to scream but she couldn't make any sound that's when she recognized the face it was the man who had flirted with her only moments ago he was unconscious and she could tell right away he wasn't ever getting up and if she didn't get out of there she'd be just like him she knew well she turned and crawled toward the front of the restaurant Minutes passed like hours as she crawled across the carpeted floor. Got to the entrance to the restaurant, finally able to stand up, and people running in every direction. Security tried to calm them down and direct them to the exits, and that black smoke continued to pour in. It was hot and felt like she'd been just stepped into an oven. But the firefighters arrived, and their presence made her feel somewhat calmer. Well, she coughed again as she moved toward the exit doors where fresh green air awaited. 
As she stumbled toward the door, she noticed a fireman staring at something wide-eyed behind her. Turned her head, and at that moment she noticed a ball of fire coming straight at her. It was the morning of November 21st, 1980. Guest awoke to a crisp 38-degree Las Vegas morning. The MGM Grand Hotel and Casino was the jewel of the Strip. Modern, 26-story, 2 million square foot building. Employees filed into the casino ready to start the day shift. More than 5,000 people were already filled the hotel and the casino, 50 of whom were in the Orleans Coffee Shop. His guests were served their coffee and eggs. The second largest life-loss hotel fire in U.S. history had already started to burn. The deli, located next to the coffee shop, was one of the few restaurants that hadn't yet opened. And unbeknownst to anybody, two friction-damaged wires in a display case had been rubbing together for quite some time. That rubbing was caused by a machine that powered a refrigerated display case. And that display case was in the deli, and the wires located in the wall went unnoticed. And as those wires worked against each other, they eventually wore thin, so much so that on this November day, the wires touched together, caused an arc, and then a spark, and then a fire. Well, fire codes in the 70s, when the MGM was built, were vastly different from modern-day fire codes. Codes at that time didn't require sprinkler systems or readily available fire extinguishers, and because no sprinklers went off when the fire started, the flames found a steady supply of fuel in the plastic and the paper and the wood building material. It wasn't until 7 o'clock in the morning when the fire was first noticed by MGM employees. Chef Oborn grabbed a nearby wall-mounted fire hose from the kitchen and rushed toward the flames. Now, he was saved from certain death by a fellow employee who stopped him from using it on the fire. The hose Chief Oborn, uh, a Chef Oborn, had grabbed was filled with water. And he used water on an electrical fire, he'd have been electrocuted. And given a constant supply of fuel and a little resistance, the fire spread quickly, often at a rate of 15 feet per second, easily reached temperatures over 2,000 degrees. Well, the Clark County Fire Department was contacted at 7.13, responded at 7.17, only four minutes later. By then, thick black smoke was billowing from the building. Firefighters loosened their entered the building when they were met by a fireball rolling to them from the deli. Well, faced with the ball of fire washing toward them, Captain Rex Smith ordered his men to evacuate the casino. It took Captain Smith and his crew 25 seconds to run out of the casino and reach their fire trucks. And they were fired by that fireball, followed by that fireball, which came shooting out the front of the building, destroying everything in its path. It traveled 336 feet in only 25 seconds. Well, the employees at MGM put the lives of their guests ahead of their own. Their own security, but every employee who could pitched in to help guests reach the exits. Employees were shocked to find that even as the fire spread, guests wouldn't leave the shop slot machines they were playing, no matter how much they begged them to. And as the fire swept through the casino, many of the guests were more concerned about saving or stealing the small round pieces of plastic uh, representing money than they'd won, and they were saving their own lives. One guest wouldn't leave to the pit boss, personally vouched for the amount of chips he had in front of him. Another continued to pull the handle of a slot machine, even though the guest was warned by an employee that people are dying over there. The employee helped guests to evacuate. Security struggled to gain control of the situation. Uh, looters rushed in to grab what they could. Money from the gambling tables, jewelry from the guest rooms, and 
Some of the looters didn't make it back outside, of course. Strangely enough, the very thing that allows Vegas to be an entertainment mecca in the scorching desert heat would be the cause of the MGM's demise. If it wasn't for the invention of air conditioning, nobody in their right mind would have ever endured the scorching 100-plus degree heat that hit Las Vegas every summer. It's air conditioning that allows Vegas to be a resort in the desert, and it was air conditioning that allowed the deadly smoke to spread throughout the casino and into the hotel. Air conditioning return ducts funneled the deadly smoke from the casino into many of the rooms in the north wing of the hotel. In some cases, the smoke was filtered, but even then, toxic carbon monoxide was still pumped into the rooms. Some guests ran from their rooms into the stairwells, only to find them engulfed in smoke. Once in the stairwell, any guest who allowed the door to slam behind them found the door locked when it closed, trapping them in that smoke. Screaming was no use because there was nobody to hear them. The only choice was to climb higher and try to outrun the rising smoke. Many, became, many quickly became disoriented. Trapped with no escape, they died in the stairwell. As the heavy black smoke passed through the ventilation system and seeped under the doors of the guest room, many took their chances and jumped out the windows. They chose to leap to their deaths rather than face an inevitable suffocation. Of course, some guests simply died in their sleep, unaware of the black death that rolled into their rooms. Television cameras responded immediately and broadcast the disaster nationally. Many residents, seeing the melee played out in front of them, chose to get involved. Owner of a local helicopter business rounded his pilots to the scene, and as the helicopter circled overhead, guests pleaded to be rescued. Unfortunately, the length of the helicopter's blades prevented the pilots from getting close enough to rescue uh, guests from their room. Instead, the pilots took their helicopters to the roof where they were able to land. They rescued guests and employees stranded for more than two hours on upper levels of the hotel. Helicopters also provided by the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, the Ellis Air Force Base, and services as far away as San Diego, California. Local trucking company donated two refrigerated semi-trailers that were quickly turned into a makeshift morgue. Three deputy coroners were sent to the scene to identify bodies. All totaled. 85 people died as a result of the fire or fire-related injuries. 79 of those deaths were a result of smoke or carbon monoxide inhalation. More than 700 guests and employees were injured. 300 firefighters reported symptoms of smoke inhalation, and 14 were hospitalized. When the smoke cleared, the north end of the casino was completely destroyed. 24 floors of the hotel untouched by the fire were damaged by thick, heavy smoke. Strangely enough, the south side of the casino came through relatively unscathed. True Las Vegas fashion, a day after the fire, MGM Grand Vice President Steve Brooke proclaimed the showroom showed little damage and could easily house a show that night. Most of the restaurants on the south end experienced little damage as well. Well, the hotel was eventually sold. MGM Grand relocated to the corner of Tropicana and Las Vegas Boulevard, where it was currently located. Valley's Las Vegas now occupies the spot uh, where the MGM fire took place. Well, since the fire, employees at Valley's have reported guests calling the front desk, claiming to see such things as dismembered feet floating in their rooms. When the employees check the room numbers, they're always located in the tower where the fire took place. Guests have also reported seeing ghostly apparitions of people in the halls who appear and then suddenly disappear in front of their eyes. Employees at Bally's are all too familiar with that portion of the hotel known as the Emerald Tower. Guest room attendants who work on the appropriately named graveyard shift on the upper floors, that's 19 through 24, frequently report seeing shadowy figures lying on the beds in many of the rooms. 
And some of these attendants are known to carry rosary beads as they attend to the rooms on those floors. Several employees refused to use one of the service elevators in the tower because, as the story goes, room service employees lost their lives in that elevator during the fire. When old ghosts have been reported in the elevator, some employees aren't willing to take the chance. The ghosts of people who perished in the fire are not limited to the Emerald Tower. Many guests reported seeing people floating through the casino, and for some unexplained reason, this seems to occur only on the casino's busiest night. Faced with a decision either burn to death in a fire or die from a 19-story drop, it's easy to see why those who perished in the fire at the MGM can't seem to let go. As a result of the fire, building codes throughout the U.S. were updated to mandate sprinklers, fire extinguishers, and emergency warning systems. And while devastating, the fire of Las Vegas become a city that is uh, the most advanced fire protection systems available. And even still, the fire is often one of the most talked about events when the subject of Las Vegas is raised. This event, um, to this day, if you excuse the expression, still haunts the city. Well, you know, some people believe that ghosts are simply residual energy that remains in an area long after the people have gone. And if that's true, there's no greater source of energy in Las Vegas than what was once the Sands uh, Copa Room. And although the building that once housed that famous showroom doesn't exist anymore, in true Las Vegas style, the crowds still seem to roar. You know, people sitting at the tables in the famous Copa Room at the Sands Hotel Casino saw such acts as uh, Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. and in this small room was always packed with men in suits and ties and women dressed in elegant dresses. That's how you dressed in those days to go to these events. They all come to the famous showroom to see the Rat Pack perform, and that performance always started with Dean Martin. You know, as soon as he hit the stage and he could get the crowd to climb down, he broke into song singing the way only Dean Martin could. And when he would finish, the crowd would applaud and Martin would smile and bow. And the, uh, unusually, when the clapping died down, he'd say, I'd like to have you meet my wonderful pianist. The, uh, he looked over and pointed at the older, balding man sitting at the piano. Not only is he a fine musician, fine piano player, Composer of songs. This young man has been a communist for 32 years. And the crowd had always lowered with laughter. And Martin would go on to say, I'm very fortunate to have him. Because he's responsible for a great big hit. Everybody loves somebody. He wrote it. His name's Ken Lane. And then Lane would start playing the song, and Martin would look at him and say, just one chorus, and we'll get out, because I'll have to drink. Well, three Las Vegas locals, Zach Baggins, Nick Groff, and Aaron Goodwin, stars of the Travel Channel's Ghost Adventures, arrived at Madame Tussauds Wax Museum at the Venetian Las Vegas Casino Hotel and Resort. Purpose was to spend the night in the museum and record what they experienced. And they have, of course, recording devices, both video and digital. 
and an array of handheld electronic equipment designed to capture all manner of paranormal activity. Well, the museum stands on the site of the old Sands Hotel and Casino, a portion of which now occupies the same place where the famous Copa Room once hosted the hottest acts in Vegas. And some of those same entertainers, including the Rat Pack, now occupy the museum, immortalized in wax. Maybe because it's, the museum is located in the exact spot where the Copa Room once stood, or maybe it's because of the history of Madame Trussard herself, who once had a job making death masks for victims of the guillotine in 18th century France. But many of the employees at the Wax Museum reported hearing and seeing ghosts. Kurt Maine, an employee in the screen maze at the museum, has experienced several paranormal events while working there. On one occasion, an older man dressed in overalls came out of the bathroom and walked right through him. On another occasion, while he's sitting in a part of the museum meant to resemble the morgue, he heard a man's voice just kind of, oh. Next thing I know, something taps him on the back of my bald head. Well, Maine, along with other employees, also claimed to have seen an old man dressed in a 1970s-style white shirt and green pants walk up the stairway going to the second floor of the museum. He's frequently seen walking up the stairs, then he vanishes. Chris Mays, the show manager at Madame Tussauds, who himself is reported hearing laughter and glasses clinking in the area of the old Copa room, opened the back door of the museum and wished the ghost adventure team good luck as they stepped inside to start their investigation. Well... It's interesting to note that um, the two, the, the three uh, ghost chasers set up two static night vision cameras, one in the Viva Las Vegas room and one covering the staircase where the man with the green pants has been seen. They set up REM pods on the stairs. These paranormal research tools are designed to flash a light when the presence of electromagnetic energy is detected. Baggins suggested the group start off by moving around so their bodies could be used to try and pick up on any energy that might be in the room. When this had happened in the past, the group had been able to record electronic voice phenomena almost immediately, and he was hoping that would be the case now. Well, it's interesting that um, a number of people reported, in addition to the, seeing the figures, the sounds of a party going on. We'll talk more about that in tomorrow's show, but for right now, we're running out of time. So until tomorrow at this time, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.